I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. After more than 30 years on the Supreme Court, on June 27th, Justice Anthony M. Kennedy announced his retirement from the bench. Uh, we are joined today by three former law clerks to Justice Kennedy who will help us understand the constitutional vision of this tremendously significant justice. We'll discuss what it was like to work for him and will help us understand together how he conceived of the Constitution and this great document of human freedom that binds us. Joining us are John Elwood, a partner at Vincent and Elkins Law Firm, who teaches at the University of Virginia School of Law Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. He clerked for Justice Kennedy uh, in the 1996 term. Leah Littman is assistant professor of law at the University of California, Irvine Law School. She is guest host of the First Monday Supreme Court podcast. A shout out to our friends at First Mondays and blogs at the Take Care blog. She clerked for Justice Kennedy in the 2011 term. And Christopher Yu is John H. Chestnut Professor of Law, Communications, and Computer and Information Science, and Director for the Center of Technology, Innovation, and Competition at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He clerked for Justice Kennedy in the 1997 term. John, Leah, and Christopher, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Uh, Christopher, you are here in the studio with me. So I'll begin with you. Thank you so much for coming over uh, to the Constitution Center. Just how, let's just jump in by telling our audience uh, either how you first met Justice Kennedy during your interview or, or some uh, personal interaction that you recall, which will help uh, bring him to life for our uh, eager audience. I met him, in, of course, from the first time in the interview, which is always the uh, low-stress, very relaxed, normal way to meet somebody. <laughs> um, I still remember very uh, clearly you know, the conversation we had where you know, he conveyed to me sort of the sense of community values and decency and general awareness that uh, permeated so much of his jurisprudence. And I, I still remember uh, it was right before Christmas, and I went home for a vacation and I hadn't heard, and uh, he had been calling my references and hadn't actually gotten to a decision. And I remember waking up that night, Sunday night, thinking I should change the outgoing message on my uh, phone, my voicemail, just in case a phone call happened. And my mother-in-law, when I was with my mother, uh, my fam wife's family came in and said, um, and my secretary was on the phone. I was like, Justice Kennedy is on the phone. Will you take the call? <laughs> I dare say I said, yes. Um, <laughs> If the, in terms of personal recollections, what really overwhelmed me when I got to know the justice better in chambers, not so much on the first time, is really how unique his experiences were. Um, he had a breadth of legal expertise that goes beyond what lawyers normally get these days. So, for example, he's tried criminal cases when defense attorneys were appointed out of the private bar. He's incorporated companies. He wrote wills. He established Machiadora plants and free trade zones in, in Mexico. 
And people who look at modern lawyers will realize that that kind of breadth of experience is extremely unusual. And it was, he started in the 60s and 70s in Sacramento in what was then a fairly small town legal market. And he had a really rich set of experiences that made him as interested in commercial law cases as he was about the big constitutional cases because he understood how important they were to uh, practicing lawyers and more importantly to the people they represented. I also had another privilege, which was um, I was the only person at the beginning of my term who had had a child among the clerks. Mm. And um, at that point, Justice Kennedy was expect his daughter was expecting their first grandchild. And uh, there were moments, including when he had us over for dinner, where he was so dear to my son uh, in ways that uh, parents will understand uh, makes me very grateful. It's, it's one thing to do nice things for me, but when people do nice things for your children, that's something you never forget. Mm, thank you so much for that wonderful recollection. Leah, uh, same question to you for first meeting and, and some personal recollections. So I also met the justice for the first time when I interviewed with him for a clerkship. And like Christopher, I also have very vivid memories of our conversation and the interaction. I remember being escorted into his chambers and the justice is sitting on a chair. I think he was sipping tea at this point. And during the interview, we end up discussing something that he has released a reading list about, which is threats to the rule of law elsewhere um, uh, on the globe and some of the reasons for those threats and what he thought could be done about them. The justice was very committed to the idea that educating people about the reasons for freedom and liberty and the rule of law is the mechanism to ensure that people keep it. And we talked a little bit about that. We talked some about some areas of law. We talked about the justices' trips to China. He often teaches at law schools abroad and learned a lot in those experiences about people's views about the U.S. legal system and their own legal systems. And he was very interested in really not only all manners of law, but everything that even touched the world around him. He was a really curious person. And so that was what our interview was like. And he hired me on the spot. So thankfully I didn't have to go through the waiting process that Christopher describes that would have been excruciating. As far as specific recollections that I have, there are so many memories of that chambers. And afterwards, some of my favorite memories are being around the lunch table in chambers or going to the justices country club with my co-clerks and me um, and just discussing. It, it, we didn't typically discuss the cases was the court was currently hearing at that time, but maybe cases the court had heard before, issues the justice thought might come before the court. Again, he was really a person who was interested in so many things, and it was wonderful to be in a chambers like that. Thank you so much for that. What a great uh, story about the reading list. And indeed, uh, when he came to the Constitution Center, he offered a reading list as well, which listeners can find online about key texts to freedom, uh, which uh, begin with ancient Greece. Uh, John, finally, the first round to, to you, clerkship stories and some personal recollections. So like the others, the first time I ever clapped eyes on Justice Kennedy or met him personally was in the interview. I think it was after I'd already gotten done a fairly substantive interview with his four law clerks. Um, I went in to see him. And of course, I was uh, very 
uh, I don't know, nervous. But he immediately sets you at ease. He's an extremely gracious man and uh, very charming. And he, you know, immediately set me at ease and asked me some, you know, very open-ended question. I think he said something like, so how am I doing? Or something <laughs> like that. As though, you know, you get to, as I was a 29-year-old at the time, uh, I get to critique a Supreme Court justice. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, I did it and he hired me anyway. As far as uh, personal recollections go, I had uh, the office that was closest of all the clerks to the justice, which uh, was a real, I think, a benefit because I meant I had the most personal interaction with the justice, kind of casual interaction, because when he wanted something done, like uh, he'd come just striding in and ask me to do it. Um, and uh, happily, I was able to duck most serious work. Like he never asked me to write any speeches for him, uh, most of which I think he could do off the top of his head. He really is very good at sort of speaking about civics and things like that. Um, but uh, the, the best job I got, I remember fairly early on, um, I, uh, my phone rang and it was one of the secretaries and she said, just said, hold, please hold for Justice Kennedy. And as I was waiting for him to get on the line, I was thinking, oh, good Lord, what's going on? You know, I, I thought there was going to be some sort of disaster. And anyway, he, he was uh, just on the road and he said, you know, John, I want to attempt, I want to attempt to mimic him. He said, John, uh, I'm in, um, oh heck. Uh, I forget where he was, although it will come to me the minute I hang up. He was in North Carolina and he said, I'm in so-and-so. I'd like to find a place to get some barbecue. And so this was in, you know, 1996. And so I had to use, you know, there wasn't really an internet at that point. And so I had to use Westlaw in order to find him a good barbecue, <laughs> gym, which was conveniently located across from the emergency room entrance at the hospital. But I at least uh, rose to the occasion that day and I perform many such uh, miscellaneous tasks, which, as I say, were one of the big upsides of having the office closest to him. An impressive job of legal research. Um, all right. Now, what I would like very much to do is to ask you to describe Justice Kennedy's constitutional vision and, you know, in, in as much nuance and depth as you can. There's a book about Justice Kennedy called The Tie Goes to Freedom. Uh, Justice Kennedy on liberty. Some have described him as a natural law libertarian. Others have used different labels. But uh, Christopher, starting with you, what was his uh, judicial philosophy and his, and his approach to the Constitution? I, I definitely think liberty was an animating vision for him in so many different ways. I think that, um, you know, I remember when we were talking about um, in my interview, he asked me, should community values uh, inform the law? And I said, well, absolutely, but there are certain principles, such as the First Amendment, that transcend it. And I pointed out in, he had a dissent in a case called Florida Bar versus Went for it, where um, he it was he, where the court upheld uh, a restriction on attorney advertising, mostly because people find it distasteful. And his point in his dissent was just because something's distasteful is not a justification for upholding it when something as important as free speech is at stake. And I saw the same thread of really focusing on a strong liberty vision and free speech in a case called Playboy Enterprises versus FCC, which finally established clearly what the First Amendment standard to be applied to cable television would be. And this is, you know, oddly enough, some 30, 40 years after the technology come to be into existence. And the fact that it took so long for many of us is kind of frustrating because there was a, a lot of ambiguity and a lot of, 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 of uncertainty in the meantime. But he, in the, and with, you know, with a case 
captioned Playboy Enterprises versus the FCC, you know, the petitioner isn't necessarily the most sympathetic. But I think he wrote a very liberty-oriented opinion where he understood the importance of free speech and the fact that some people find it distasteful is, uh, in the words of the Supreme Court, not his words. In this case, is a reason to protect it, not a reason to restrict it. At the same time, there was a pragmatic quality to some of it, uh, some of his, his uh, writings. Some of the most uh, noted free speech writings in the tech space is Tur his Turner Broadcasting decisions. And that's where he uh, took what, instead of a straight liberty position, he accommodated it to the realities of a world in which cable is coming in disrupting and disrupting a, a world that had been settled around broadcast television. And, he up, and the two decisions upheld a decision, uh, a, a congressional statute that said, we can deviate from straight liberty sometimes when it's not content-based and there's other values at stake. And he thought that the localism values promoted by uh, broadcasting uh, were among them. Now, there's been a lot of commentary up and down about whether that was, you know, uh, any Supreme Court decision will generate uh, discussion about it. But I do think in terms of it was revealing whether that's uh, whether people agree in or disagree with that decision in the end, it's revealing in his mind that liberty, while important, is uh, one of many considerations that goes into the mix, usually the dominant one, but there are pragmatic circumstances under which it isn't uh, controlling. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Leah, more about your vision of Justice Kennedy's judicial philosophy. Uh, if there was a focus on liberty, where did it come from? And uh, how did it manifest itself while you were clicking for him? So liberty definitely comes to mind when I think of Justice Kennedy and his jurisprudence, although perhaps less so or less libertarian in the criminal procedure field with the exception of the Eighth Amendment. But I think that the justices' conception of liberty or belief in liberty is, as Christopher was suggesting, in a lot of ways most evident in his First Amendment jurisprudence, where he thinks that the way for people to affect change and the way for people to be kind of autonomous and free is having the ability to formulate ideas, debate them, and talk with one another. Part of Justice Kennedy's understanding of liberty is also imagining a world in which everyone treats one another as Justice Kennedy would treat them, which is to say, never say kind of unkind or harsh words. The justice was very attentive to legislation that he thought showed animus toward individuals or groups of individuals, I think because, you know, he, he believed that part of liberty is a kind of inherent dignity or equality among people. So that is part of the justice's jurisprudence, but it also was tempered by, as Christopher was again suggesting, his belief that he's talked about openly that the Constitution, the big C Constitution, needs to kind of track the small C Constitution. That is, that you can't have courts getting out too far or too too far ahead or too far behind the way practices are on the ground or the way the people themselves feel. And I think that that pragmatic principle um, was partially kind of influencing his role as a judge. You know, in a lot of his writings, he spoke about the role of the court as perhaps a teacher of the people, but they couldn't teach the people or force the people to do something that they weren't maybe ready to do already. That's a very interesting connection you drew between his vision of liberty and also 
equality, dignity, and civility all being uh, part of the same value. John, your uh, reflections as you talk about all this, where do you think this focus on liberty came from and, and how did it manifest itself in his judicial philosophy? Well, I, th I think he focused on it because he thought that was kind of the point of the entire enterprise. And, you, you know, when I arrived, that is the entire enterprise of American government. When I arrived, uh, especially, you know, I came from Yale Law School, which gets kind of a perhaps justifiable rap for, uh, you know, not actually teaching the law. And certainly they were focused on uh, the amendments uh, to the Constitution. They really thought of the amendments to the Constitution as being the guarantees of rights. And uh, Justice Kennedy definitely instilled in me much more of a focus on the structural guarantees of liberty or mechanisms to uh, guarantee liberty, you know, separation of powers and uh, federalism, things like that, um, which uh, was an interesting way of, of looking at things for me. And I think that that's where uh, he thought it came from is that the whole point of the American experiment, experiment was to uh, provide, you know, the most liberty we began with it. And the government was, uh, you know, founded to uh, help ensure that for the, the citizens. Um, I, I agree also with uh, what Aaliyah said about this whole uh, dignity angle. I think it came along uh, perhaps later, like uh, there were certain things that I was very attuned to in his writing. Uh, and this, uh, the first time I think I noticed it was in Alden versus Maine, a federalism case, uh, that he used this word dignity when he was talking then about the dignitary interests of uh, states. Um, but it began to crop up more and more uh, as a thread running through uh, many of his opinions, uh, you know, in, in such disparate things as, again, Alden versus Maine state sovereign. Um, uh, I, I, I think that was a sovereign immunity case. And... Um, uh, you know, like uh, juvenile death penalty or death penalty for underage offenders um, and things of that sort. So uh, it began to be uh, kind of a, a common theme for him, which is in keeping with his own behavior. And he was very, um, you know, he he referred to uh, etiquette of things in several different contexts, like the etiquette of federalism. And um, that's the only time I heard him use it, use it personally, uh, etiquette of federalism. But I'm, I imagine he would have thought of etiquette between the branches of government as well, you know, and just uh, how the various branches communicate and treat one another. Extremely interesting. All of you in different ways have drawn a connection between his focus on personal civility and civic civility, the way the branches treat each other, the way citizens should treat each other, and this manifests itself in this very powerful focus on dignity. I'd like to read a quotation from his confirmation hearings, which seemed really revealing when I uh, came across it. He was asked what standards judges should use to determine what private consensual activities are protected by the Constitution. And these were his words. A very abbreviated list of the considerations are the essentials of the right to human dignity, the injury to the person, the harm to the person, the anguish to the person, the inability of the person to manifest his or her own personality, the inability of the person to obtain his or her own self-fulfillment, the inability of a person to reach his or her own potential. It's a remarkable statement, and of course it seemed to foreshadow his decision to root the right to marriage equality and human dignity and anticipated his most influential holding as a justice uh, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Christopher, this is very resonant and very unique in American jurisprudence and hugely influential, perhaps his greatest ju jurisprudential contribution. What do you make of this as a constitutional matter and where did it come from? 
Well, I think it's fascinating. I remember seeing a scholarly article that looked at the passages you just quoted from his confirmation hearing and other things and, and compared it to his jurisprudence and that quote and others. And frankly, they, they, the conclusion was uh, Justice Kennedy was exactly as a judge who he said he was in the confirmation hearings and that he did have this strong sense of, of – both liberty, but also civic responsibility, that the liberty should be expressed in a context that allow that allowed proper discourse that facilitated um, uh, really an exchange of ideas in a way that's constructive, in a way that I think resonates, I think, powerfully with all of us here today. Uh, we're seeing a world in which that uh, globally, in every country of the world, we see things are changing a great deal. And I think that um, he grew up in uh, a household where he was very uh, a strong family, a, a certain sense of dynamics that I think shaped him powerfully. And that um, we also have to remember the circumstances under which he was appointed. He was the third nominee for that spot. The first one was Robert Bork. The second one was Douglas Ginsburg, both of whom were not confirmed for various reasons. And he was selected by then-President uh, Reagan basically to be uh, uh, squeaky clean, you know, among <laughs> other things. And... Um, I still remember reading, this is not something from my experience, but um, someone said they were doing the inevitable background interviews and uh, they had a series of questions they asked. Has, has this person ever, to your knowledge, had this problem or that problem? And the person who was being interviewed stopped the interviewer and said, are, there, are there all the questions going to be like this? He says, yeah, pretty much. And he said, well, this is going to be a long interview, but I'll tell you right now, the guy's a Boy Scout. I mean, <laughs> and um, I do think that he believed, grew up in that environment, believing, inculcated with these values that of how a society should behave that are really inspirational. And that I hope that um, they certainly have affected me and how I looked at the world. And um, I hope that uh, their values that I think will come in more in f to focus. I think we've, they're values that we've never needed more than we need them right now. Uh, that's powerfully put. Uh, Leah, no one would deny that the values that Justice Kennedy articulated in his hearings, dignity, the right to self-fulfillment and so forth, are powerfully necessary for personal fulfillment and for civic thriving. But how did he root them in the Constitution? His, his critics, of course, uh, like Justice Scalia, dismissed that passage I read as the sweet mystery of life passage and thought it was uh, philosophy but, but not constitutional law. So how, how did Justice Kennedy draw the connection between these values he cared so much about and the, and the Constitution? Yes, yeah, so I've also heard the the sweet mystery of lifeline because when I got this clerkship, uh, one of my co-clerks at the time played an excerpt from an opera called Sweet Mystery of Life <laughs> to me. It's a little bit ironic that the irony has not been lost on me entirely that some of these people will now be selecting the justices' replacement, but that is perhaps a conversation from another time. Wow. You know, I, I think that it is true that Justice Kennedy has been criticized for putting these concepts in the Constitution that aren't there. But what does it mean for a concept to be in the Constitution or not? There are lots of constitutional rules that can't 
be exactly identified with the constitutional text. I am not aware of the specific provision of the Constitution that says Congress cannot require state officials to enforce federal law, require state officials to enact state laws, or that forbids Congress from abrogating states' immunity under Article I of the Constitution. Those are background principles, the etiquette of federalism that John was alluding to that are read into the Constitution because they form the backdrop of the Constitution that was enacted and they represent principles against which the Constitution exists and it relies on. Those are some of the same rationales that have been offered to justify Justice Kennedy's grounding of liberty, dignity, equality, and civility in the Constitution. It is a basis on which our Constitution is operated that legislators and officials can't enact legislation to harm certain groups based on their characteristics and can't regard certain groups as inherently unequal or a subject group to others. So I don't think that idea is that strange to say, oh, that's in the Constitution or it's not. There is an equal protection clause. The Constitution refers to liberty. And, you know, there are other provisions as well. The Ninth Amendment says, you know, there are some rights that aren't specified in the text. So there are um, uh, places in the Constitution that are um, as easily associated with some of the principles that Justice Kennedy um, often articulated as other principles that different justices have embraced as well. Thank you uh, very much for that. Uh, John, as, as Leah suggested, some of Justice Kennedy's clerks embrace the, you know, what Justice Kennedy, what Justice Scalia called the, the, the sweet mystery uh, vision and others did not. Uh, what did you think about it? And, and what was Justice Kennedy's response to the criticisms of that passage? You know, I I came to Justice Kennedy. I, I've always been much more of a practitioner, uh, never wanted to be an academic. Uh, I came to him via the Justice Department where I'd been a criminal appellate lawyer for two years. And so I had a, uh, I came to the clerkship with a much different idea in that I was basically a relentless generator of syllogisms. I would take, I would just crank out Iraq, issue rule analysis conclusion. <laughs> And, um, and uh, you know, I think that uh, Justice Kennedy saw a purpose to that, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, he uh, approached things very differently. And, um, you know, if it bothered him, uh, because he certainly suffered this, uh, you know, he, he uh, the, the other justices wouldn't let him off the hook about it. Um, you know, uh, uh, Justice Scalia's... Uh, uh, dissent in Casey was scathing. Uh, his dissent in Obergefell was scathing, and and uh, and Windsor was scathing. And um, uh, and if it did bother him, uh, you know, he 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 had left that behind him. You know, <laughs> he he knew his mind. He knew uh, his view on things. And um, you know, uh, it it. Uh, there's uh, there's a line that they say um, about um, Ulysses Grant. One of his men said he don't scare with a dam, and uh, uh, you know it's not like you really would be scared of your coworkers. But you know he had his vision of the Constitution, and uh, if other people were going to criticize him for it, you know that's what dissents were for. But that's how he was going to write the opinion, and um, you know there may be times when uh, he didn't get the uh, a fifth vote. 
Uh, but usually that wasn't in constitutional cases or, you know, the, the one I'm thinking of here is, uh, I guess Turner Broadcasting was a constitutional case, but it wasn't kind of a, a sweet mystery of life case. It was a First Amendment case. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, he had his own vision of the Constitution, and uh, it, I think it was fine with him if uh, it was not shared by others. Uh, thank you for that insight. Uh, Christopher, you and your colleagues have alluded not only to Justice Kennedy's vision of autonomy, uh, but also you've, you've talked about dignity, and in particular this theme of his aversion to animus has come up, and that's a huge contribution that he made jurisprudentially as well. Before he, he really became the swing justice, the court was much more focused on technical levels of scrutiny and deciding who was a suspect class and who wasn't. And he cut through those technicalities and asked, is this law motivated by animus against a group? Where did that come from? How did it play itself out? And how is that influential? Animus has always been a part of, of constitutional law, certainly in the Eagle Protection Clause. I mean, going back to the case of Washington versus Davis, you know, we can do all these levels, of, talk about the levels of scrutiny, but uh, a, a motivation and of discriminatory motivation has always been problematic under the Equal Protection Clause, particularly under um, different uh, levels of heightened scrutiny. Um, without going too much into the details, though, I mean, one of the things you'll see in terms of the niceties of the levels of scrutiny is uh, sometimes the dynamics of a plural court in action, which is um, in order to firmly establish a level of scrutiny, you have to have five justices who are willing to sign an opinion saying it. And there are differing, often differing opinions as to whether the proper level of scrutiny or not even disagreement in the, on to what the legal standard should be, but as to when that should be decided and if this were a particular case in which that's going to be stated. And I, I guess when you look at it from the outside, I would be a little careful to understand that sometimes the statement, the reluctance to engage in formal analysis and a formal statement of exactly what the rules are going to, that will apply to that case and in future cases, can be a reflection of the dynamics of a nine-body institution that takes five votes. And sometimes uh, you don't answer all of the potential questions as clearly as you might and postpone for another day uh, the formal decisions just because that's what the court, the composition of the court will allow you to do. Very interesting. So, Leah, more about animus and also more about Christopher's suggestion that one of part of Justice Kennedy's influence came from the fact that he defined rights at a level of abstraction that the different sides could converge around and maybe remind our listeners about how Supreme Court opinions are assigned, you know, by the chief if he's in the majority or he can assign it to the justice on the on, on the fence, who was often Justice Kennedy and, and similarly for the dissent. So how did that internal court dynamic play into the influence of Justice Kennedy's vision of animus? So a lot of the cases in which Justice Kennedy wrote about animus were 5-4 decisions, some of which had him siding with the more liberal wing of the court. In recent years, that would have meant Justice Kennedy was the assigning justice and so would assign those opinions to himself. But when Justice Stevens was on the court, then Justice Stevens would have assigned the opinion to Justice Kennedy. And sometimes there are reasons to give the opinion to the member of the court who you think is perhaps 
um, more open to reconsidering their position or perhaps less certain of their vote than the other justices are because that ensures that they would write in an opinion that they would be comfortable joining. I think that the justices' conception of animus was, you know, certainly an important part of his jurisprudence that came out most recently and perhaps most frequently in cases in which he wrote about LGBTQ rights. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that aspect of his jurisprudence endures and people continue talking about for a long time. Really interesting. Uh, just reiterated for for listeners. So what Leah's explaining is, if uh, the chief justice in, is in the minority, then the senior associate justice in the in the majority gets to assign. That could be the most senior liberal justice, Justice Stevens or Justice Ginsburg. But he or she would often assign the decision to Justice Kennedy because he just to make sure that he stayed in the in their camp. Um, John, how did more more on that internal court? dynamic and and also was justice kennedy decisive or not some portrayed him as you know a hamlet sort of agonizing about decisions but on the other hand his, his jurisprudence was so clear and consistent across the board so how, how did he uh, enact that that role as the swing justice you know i i think my impression of justice kennedy from my year with him was that he was pretty decisive um, you know, there were times, uh, uh, Leah has written that all Justice Kennedy clerks are counter clerks at some point. That is, they're taking the opposite view of the justice, uh, and trying to persuade him of something else. Uh, but I found that, uh, you know, the areas where he might've seemed indecisive were where, uh, he didn't, he didn't agree with you from the outset and you were trying to persuade him. And, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, it may have been, uh, simply tact that he didn't just tell you you're wrong. But, um, I, you know, I found him to be fairly decisive. Um, there were times when I would uh, try to, you know, persuade him of stuff. And, you know, over the course of several days, uh, he would, uh, you know, work his way around to know. Um, there were also, uh, there were admittedly, though, there were cases where, um, you know, even if he had an impulse, uh, you know, he took all of these cases very seriously. And... You know, even if uh, he had an idea which way he thought they were going to go, he, you know, he thought about them. He, as he said uh, to me, you know, he brooded about them. And uh, I had the, you know, very 20th century fax, uh, fax machine in my office. Um, <laughs> and I would come in uh, some yes. mornings and, uh, you know, discover, you know, that he had sent a fax, uh, you know, in the wee hours uh, and it'd say, you know, here with the product of late night brooding, and it would be his thoughts on something. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there were cases that he uh, really thought long and hard about. Um, but I think that that was really more a matter of refining his thinking. It wasn't that he didn't know which way to go. It was kind of uh, uh, refining his thinking from what I could see. Very interesting indeed. Uh, and that idea of brooding and the seriousness with which he took these um, 
decisions. Uh, Christopher, Justice Kennedy voted, uh, at least in the 1990s, to strike down more federal and state laws than any other justice. What was his vision of the court's role in checking populist or democratic excesses? And did he believe that citizens would indeed rally around uh, the court's vision of a constitution that united uh, them? I don't know that he thought of it as uh, democratic excesses as rather the vindication of rights and liberties. I suppose by definition, anytime you enforce a constitutional right, you're overturning a democratically elected statute. But uh, I don't, I never got the sense that there was any vision in him of uh, a need to curb democratic processes. So one of the last times we spoke, we were talking about uh, James Wilson and, and, and the founding. And one of the things that's very, very clear, if you go back and read the original constitutional convention and the, what, what records we have, is that the Virginians, and particularly Madison in that context, had an extreme distrust of democracy and that he was really worried about mob rule and faction and was trying to structure a constitution with a Senate at the center and a Senate that was not democratically elected but rather under the control of the states as an attempt to put a decision through what he called successive filtration, that we have to go through a number of steps of places constituted in ways other than direct elections. And um, if, when I hear you talk about, you know, distrust the democratic process, I think of that, you know, as someone who didn't believe that that would lead to, that the inherent political process wouldn't lead to good things. I don't have that feeling about Justice Kennedy. And I can think it's possible to believe in values of liberty such as free speech without necessarily having a very, very negative view of the process. It's just you understand that political exigencies raise certain questions and uh, they lead to certain enactments and the, and the court has to act. Um, but I do think that um, he also did see, as John has put out, structural government as an important bulwark against uh, protecting liberty. And again, that's not really thinking of the process as le as being fractured or somehow bad. Um, going, It's just, um, you know, the classic statement is, you know, power tends to corrupt, absolute power tends to corrupt, absolutely. And the Madisonian solution in our constitution is to divide power against itself and to police it in certain ways. It's possible to do that without, and we also have the system of federalism where we divide power from the federal government and the states, to believe in the need for strong structural checks, checks does not necessarily equate to an inherent distrust of the process uh, for being driven by venal motives or something that needs to be curbed. It's just a normal part of um, the dynamics of people pushing against each other. It's like saying just because my kids try to play me and my wife against each off against each other, it means that they're motivated by inherently bad things and therefore they need to be curbed. There's just sort of a natural dynamic that emerges among plural bodies that I think uh, is a better explanation about Justice Kennedy's jurisprudence than some need to, to step in and uh, discipline a, a democratic process gone bad. Very interesting to stress his idealism. And unlike Madison, as you suggest, who said that even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob, uh, you're suggesting that Justice Kennedy took a far sunnier and more idealistic view of uh, democracy and, uh, and, and of Americans. And indeed, uh, the scholar Akhil Amar 
uh, some of our teachers, has uh, described Justice Kennedy as a mix between Jimmy Stewart, Ronald Reagan, and Earl Warren, <laughs> uh, which I thought was great. Uh, Leah, describe Justice Kennedy's optimism, that idealism, uh, and uh, and how it manifests itself on the on the court and, and where it came from. Yeah, so I think that Christopher is right that the justice didn't necessarily think about some of these decisions in which he was invalidating federal or state statutes as, you know, curbing the excesses of the democratic process. He did think that structural protections like federalism and the separation of powers were important, so too the First Amendment. And I think that when he was called on to enforce those provisions, he sometimes thought of his role as that of a teacher. And the opinions is the opportunity to explain to people why constitutional protections about structure or the First Amendment are important. So the First Amendment case, Texas versus Johnson, that we've discussed, he talked about how the flag protects people that want to criticize it. Or in the joint dissent in National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sibelius, he talked about how citizens might not understand the structural protections to be as important of the Bill of Rights and how it's the responsibility of the court to teach otherwise. So I think that part of his optimism came from this hope of, well, if people understand why the First Amendment is there or what purpose it's serving or why we have federalism or the separation of powers, then they will kind of understand why our Constitution is the way it is and what we are trying to get out of it. So that was very much a part of the justice's jurisprudence. And it was also evident in his public speaking, like the reading list we've alluded to now a few times. You know, the thinking being if you give people the tools to understand thinking about liberty and important thinkers takes on it, then they, too, will be able to defend it. Thanks so much for that. Uh, that vision that Justice Kennedy articulated of the need of the court to be a teacher, a, a, a public school in constitutional values was so powerful in his jurisprudence. He expressed similar thoughts when he came to the Constitution Center and said the center must teach citizens about the essence of American democracy in order to preserve it. And another way he put it was the Constitution, use it or lose it. Uh, John, talk about that conviction that citizens, if educated in constitutional values, would defend them. And was it effective? Did citizens uh, heed Justice Kennedy's teachings? And and, uh, and and was he interested in how they received his opinions? I, I think, I mean, he, he definitely was doing it, um, you know, basically one class at a time. Uh, you know, he spoke to any number of uh, groups who came through the court um, about the importance of, uh, you know, these sort of constitutional values. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think he's enough of an optimist that I think, um, you know, he had the faith that it would, over time, it would work. Um, I mean, I've never, I never saw him sort of despair about those things. And, you know, he was, I think he was a cheerful enough that he would go out and, you know, just keep doing it anyway. Um, uh, because it's his part, but I think you're absolutely right that he did view it as a teaching role. And I think he also thought of it as a kind of a universal thing. Um, because, uh, I, I mean, in the sense, both that he definitely would think of opinions as teaching opinions, um, when they, you know, sort of clarified, uh, some particular, uh, important constitutional principle, but it's also something that I think he believed that is something, uh, 
we do in our everyday lives. Um, I think that there is, I'm, I'm trying to remember which opinion it is in. I think it's in Obergefell where he speaks about, um, you know, religious people, uh, uh, uh teaching their own faith. If they're, uh, you know, if their own faith, uh, uh, causes them to not believe in same sex marriage, you know, that, that is their right to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh teach that in their, uh, everyday lives. So uh, it's something that was kind of a recurring theme. It was not something he just thought that uh, they would do, although he certainly thought that that was an important part of the Supreme Court's role. And he thought that that was an important part of the United States's role uh, in that he thought that uh, uh, American government had something to teach uh, other governments around the world. Uh, and he, he also took that responsibility very seriously. What's striking as we talked is how unique and distinctive and individual, Justice Kennedy's vision was. He, you couldn't cabin him as a, as a conservative originalist or a liberal pragmatist. He, he had a vision that was uniquely his own. Christopher, can you imagine that there will be future Kennedy-like uh, libertarians? Or, or is this, you know, you know, was he just sui generis? And then maybe you could share one or two lesser-known decisions that we might not think of off the top of our heads, but that you think reveal the essence of his constitutional philosophy? I think that his, uh, partly the mode of his, the way he made decisions was heavily influenced by the breadth of his practice experience. Uh, put simply, he was basically a common law lawyer who dealt with cases one at a time, analogized from case to case. And in an era where people tend to want grand theory approaches to constitutional law, I think that he took them sort of one case at a time and tried to weave them into a coherent whole. Um, there, uh, I mean, uh, he was probably best known in the early start parts of his career for his establishment clause, jurisprudence, and his, and this is a freedom of religion cases. And there, you know, I think it was, I think anyone who studied them would acknowledge that they were not, when he came to the court, the most orderly set of uh, decisions the court ever rendered. And, you know, he very much labored in a traditional common law way to bring order to them, but vectoring with his commitment to liberty as, I mean, you can bring order to disorderly cases in any one of a number of ways. And the, try, the thing he tried to do is to really create some sense of how that would all come together. But on the other hand, you know, and this is a case before I clerked, I mean, I was thinking at the same time, there was a case called Rosenberger versus Regents of the University of Virginia, where um, there was a question of, of, on the one hand, religious freedom. The, the real issue was, um, all universities pretty much charged students fees for student activities, and then they distribute those fees to student organizations across the board. And the question came up, which was, um, could you distribute those fees to a religious organization, a uh, religious student organization? And you end up with this wonderful quandary where, on the one hand, you have an establishment clause problem because the government's involved in promoting religion. On the other hand, you have a free exercise problem. And um, he, that's, to me, where Justice Kennedy was at his pragmatic best in trying to bring together two uh, concepts that are both 
very important and he took very seriously and find ways to reconcile them and bring them together in a way that well, makes sense. And I think that that's very much the thread of, of I think that's the legacy of the person, the kind of experience he had that you know, he confronted when he was during his formative years as a lawyer. That notion of him as a common law lawyer is to me fresh and surprising and very illuminating. Leah, as as we you know begin to wrap up, um, will Justice Kennedy's legacy endure? We we all know the cases which might come out differently under his successor, ranging from uh, the autonomy cases like Roe and possibly Obergefell to affirmative action to the death penalty. But more broadly, in thirty years, uh, what will the Kennedy legacy be? I'm not sure what the Kennedy legacy will be in 30 years. I think the next 30 years could see important changes, not only in the substance of the court's decision, but, you know, potentially also how people view and treat the court, you know, the other branches of government and people as well. Justice Kennedy was, as you were suggesting to Christopher, kind of a unique judge or justice right now. He His views led him to strike down federal and state statutes, and in doing so, decide with kind of both wings of the court, are we going to see another person or another judge or justice like Justice Kennedy? There certainly are lawyers like him, but I don't know that those are the kinds of lawyers that either um, party is really attempting to nominate right now. And that itself could change the public's perception of the court in the longer term, which, you know, in in doing ways could affect some of Justice Kennedy's legacy, and it could affect the substance of the court's jurisprudence as well, also potentially altering um, uh, his legacy. And so I think it's just hard to know at this point what his legacy is going to be. I did want to say, like Christopher, you know, not only do I think of Justice Kennedy as kind of a common law lawyer, but one of his favorite things to kind of get nostalgic about in chambers was he used to express to us that he always wanted to be a district court judge. And I think that some of his um, opinions really reflect the kind of respect he has for um, government officials and perhaps trial judges in particular. And as to some of his opinions that might be lesser known, but I think are important, you know, if you are looking for an opinion that maybe displays Justice Kennedy, the Westerner, with Justice Kennedy's kind of nostalgia about Americana and American history, I would say PPL Montana versus Montana, which is about the ownership of certain um, riverbeds out west and if you read that opinion, I think you can really get a sense for Justice Kennedy's appreciation um, for American history and the just kind of language of Americana. And the other kind of lesser known opinion I would identify right now is Rodriguez versus Shearson, which is about whether lower courts can overrule a Supreme Court case merely because they anticipate that the Supreme Court will. Really interesting. Uh, John, so last word to you on this uh, final round, some lesser known opinions that reveal the essence of Justice Kennedy's judicial philosophy. And in 30 years, what do you think his legacy will be? Um, I guess I'll go in reverse order. I think uh, I think his legacy will endure at least uh, several of his uh, uh, important parts of his legacy, I think, will endure. For example, uh, a very, very strong voice for free speech. I don't think that that's going anywhere. Um, I, I think also his opinions in that are much more uh, kind of conventional 
uh, than um, some of his other opinions, although so much of uh, his, uh, you know, their, uh, his, his discussion of speech is tied up in sort of self-determination. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, one of his earliest, uh, uh, um, one of the earliest parts, I think, of his legacy was federalism and that he was a, you know, fairly strong proponent of federalism early on. And I think that that also probably is uh, fairly secure. Um, uh, you know, his legacy with respect to religion and public life uh, is kind of a complicated area because on the one hand, um, you know, there are certain parts where he was very, very comfortable with the religious playing a role. And so, um, you know, he played an important part in, uh, for example, you know, uh, religious providers of services, um, you know, uh, in, in uh, them being able to uh, perform a greater role. But obviously, in cases like school prayer cases, uh, he had um, much more difficulty. And it, will, it remains to be seen whether kind of the line that he drew uh, will be stable over time. Uh, that really uh, depends on uh, all of his successors. Uh, I also suspect that uh, uh, he will have a pretty secure legacy with respect to, uh, you know, gay rights and same-sex marriage because, you know, it more or less states, it's more or less consistent with where the country is at the moment. Um, uh, so uh, we'll see. We can all uh, get back together in another 30 years. Uh, and if I'm not senile, uh, we can see how my prediction held up. Uh, as far as um, a lesser known Kennedy opinion that reflects his essence, uh, I have one that uh, will stump the band most places. It's Marilyn versus Wilson, which is a dissent he did my year. Uh, involving whether essentially police can order the passengers out of a car they've stopped out of a car. Uh, and, I, you know, I think this really um, uh, is the essence of Kennedy in that he really, uh, it, it reflects his concerns about, you know, sure, and this is kind of a counterpoint to something that, Chris, you said earlier about practicalities, and that, um, you know, this was a decision that was 7-2 only, uh, Justice Stevens and he dissented and um, and, you know, he, he acknowledged that there's all these practical reasons why you'd want to be able to do this. And he said, you know, sure, you know, there might be arguments about why um, police won't abuse this right. Uh, but uh, he ended by saying uh, these arguments miss the point. Liberty comes not from officials by grace, but from the Constitution by right, which I think shows his constitutional vision. And also in a much more minor way, it shows kind of his civility and one of the things he did in that he joined Justice Stevens's dissent. And when he began his own opinion, he always says he makes the point of saying explicitly, I join in the dissent of Justice Stevens. And I just add these observations because that's something he always wanted to look like. He always did if he could was he uh, quite frequently or usually, I think, began his separate writings by saying you know, that he joined whatever he was joining. So it didn't look like he was running away from uh, that opinion. And it was, uh, you know, something that I've, that I've struck, that has struck me over the years. Uh, and this is just another example of that. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this very rich and illuminating discussion. And this is the one or two paragraph uh, distillation of uh, our conversation. So I'll begin with uh, Christopher. And I, uh, since we've been long told for the past 30 years that we've been living in Justice Kennedy's America, the question is, what was Justice Kennedy's judicial philosophy and how did he transform the Constitution? I think 
What I always think about with Justice Kennedy is how he really his the way he led his life was really the example that he wanted to set for everyone else. We had the privilege uh, four years ago or so to host Justice Kennedy at Penn Law. And um, it was incredibly moving to a lot of the staff who've been there for a long time. He spoke with such conviction and openness and sincerity about what he thought and ups and downs and was, was very generous in sharing with people who he was. Um, and pretty much that's... Going back to your initial statement about what he said in his original testimony during his confirmation hearings to what we saw in just a few years ago in, as a justice, you know, in the sort of the mature stage of his, of his uh, tenure on the court, is you see a person who is attempting to talk sincerely and engage with issues very directly, animated by this vision of liberty um, that, but understanding that it's not always as easy to sort out as uh, might always be in different cases. And what I found was, is, um, it really resonated with the people who heard, heard him speak. And, you know, at least several of my colleagues said, you know, that was sort of the high point for them in their entire time working at Penn Law. And that's really a mark of his generosity and his openness and his willingness to share that with other people. And parenthetically, it actually created just one, a wonderful moment for me. You know, I I was one of the clerks, the class of clerks that was able to go to his house for dinner. And I never thought I'd have the chance to repay the favor. And we were privileged enough that I invited him over for dinner and I had the chance. And it was um uh, just a bunch of his former clerks with him and uh, those of us on the faculty. And it was, we actually have the largest number of former Kennedy clerks on our faculty of any law school tied with another school. And it was a really special moment to me uh, to, to talk with him and just understand that, you know, um, in, it's funny, you, we keep trying to talk about a philosophy and it's implicit there, but it's an emergent one that comes out of individual decisions. And, you know, um, so, for example, um, he would say with regard to something such as textualism, he says, you know, I'm a, a member of the no legislative history group, but not a charter member. And I thought that, that was particularly revealing, which is that, you know, he did take things like text seriously. And I think anyone who's watched the last 20 years of or, or you know, the last or longer of, of Supreme Court jurisprudence, that that's become more and more important. But there was a sense in which uh, he was never going to follow one principle uh, to the exclusion of all the others. It was a very holistic uh, way of looking at things that I think came through very clearly in his writings and has been the subject of what we've been talking about today. Thank you very much for that, Christopher. Leah, same broad final question to you. What was Justice Kennedy's constitutional vision and, and how did he transform the Constitution? I think... You know, part of his constitutional vision is the kind of relationship between liberty, equality, civility, and dignity that we've already touched upon. But I wanted to say a little bit more about Justice Kennedy's open-mindedness and this conception of him as a so-called swing justice, because I definitely agree with John that the justice had very clear and particular views on a lot of questions. He was not the justice that was vacillating back and forth that I think the swing label might imply. On the other hand, one of the best things that I can say about Justice Kennedy, and I think one of the best things that he did for the court 
was that he retained an open mind. And why that was good is that it led people to have some faith in that their arguments would be heard in court and that they had a chance of prevailing. And it also showed some humility and capacity to learn. One thing that has kind of leaked out of the court already is that perhaps there was a shift in how the Supreme Court eventually ended up deciding the case Fisher versus University of Texas. And that was an occasion, I think, where Justice Kennedy saw something or heard something that changed his mind. And I think there are others as well. And I think that that is something that will be missed. Many thanks for that. John, the last word is to you. What was Justice Kennedy's constitutional vision and how did he transform the Constitution? I think Justice Kennedy's constitutional vision was of liberty. Again, that he thought that the point of the American experiment was a government founded and dedicated to liberty, uh, founded for and dedicated to liberty. And what I think he, he did was, you know, I, I, he definitely moved us towards that vision. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he, uh, you know, voted as he did to strike down so many laws is that they were uh, laws that were uh, impairing uh, human dignity or uh, human liberty. Um, I, and, you know, I think that was his legacy is he did view himself as a common law judge. And even if you look at, uh, his letter of resignation, it shows that, you know, that's what he basically viewed it as his job as being is taking the cases one at a time as they, as they came and, uh, and, and basically judging them against his vision of the constitution. And if he did that, you know, uh, uh he had done his duty. And um, I, I, I think that will, uh, at, in some fundamental way, be his legacy. Thank you so much, Christopher Yu, Leah Littman, and John Elwood, for a illuminating, deep, nuanced, and extremely educational conversation about the constitutional legacy of Justice Kennedy. I think he would have been proud at the light that you have shown on the Constitution and his vision of its educative function. In that spirit, I've developed a uh, habit of giving homework after these podcasts. And I think the homework for this one, dear listeners, is choose an opinion by Justice Kennedy and read it and read Justice Kennedy's opinion. If there are any concurrences or dissents, read those as well. And then write to me and tell me which you found more persuasive and why. You have been writing and eagerly accepting my invitation to do this homework, and it's a beautiful expression of your lifelong commitment to educating yourself about the Constitution. And again, that's a project of which Justice Kennedy would be proud. Christopher, Leah, and John, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team of the National Constitution Center. In anticipation of our upcoming exhibit on the Civil War and Reconstruction, and in celebration of the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment on July 9th, We the People is, or are, thrilled to announce a special summer podcast series featuring the stories of some of the Reconstruction era's most influential figures. Stay tuned for more information. And finally, and so importantly, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the wisdom, the engagement, the passion, and the commitment to lifelong education of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.